Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. What can we do tonight other than talk about finance? And I'm pleased to say that keeping me company tonight are pretty much boffins. That's what I'm going to summarise them as. What they don't know about the economy and finances, I don't think is worth is not worth knowing. You've got the economic commentator Ruth Lee, the financial analyst Louise Cooper, and Jeevan Sander is an economist at King's College London. Now, if you've got any questions tonight, we've been mentioning about the spring statement there. Was you following it? Any questions that you have uh, for my panel? Anything that you want to talk about in relation to this spring statement? You can get in touch with us on email. You can reach me at gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GB News. And by the way, uh, you might have noticed it's just gone six o'clock. And if indeed you was following uh, the spring statement today, you will know that the 5p uh, cut in fuel duty took effect eight minutes ago, six o'clock it happened. Uh, did you race to your pumps to save your five pence a litre? You know what? I've got a bit of a sneaky suspicion because I've been following a lot of people uh, commenting on this story today that have been pointing out that some of the pumps that they drove past had inflated their price earlier on today by more than 5p. So when they reduce it by the 5p, it's going to cost more than it did this morning. Are people making that up or is that what's happening where you are? You can get in touch with me and let me know. I'm fascinated to find out the answer to that. But let's get straight into the spring statement then and what indeed was in it. Here's our economics and business editor, Liam Halligan, with his view. During his spring statement, Rishi Sunak echoed the Independent Office for Budget Responsibility when he said that there's an unusually high uncertainty around the economic outlook. And he wasn't kidding. Look at that. Back in October 2021, the official forecast for UK GDP growth that's all economic activity across the economy in a year was a 6% expansion, very chunky. That has now been reduced today to just a 3.8% growth forecast for this year. If there's less growth, there's less tax revenue and there's more government spending on benefits and so on. So that really boxes the Chancellor in. But the really eye-catching forecast change was in inflation, which we can see on the next slide. Inflation back in 2021, in the time of Rishi Sunak's last budget, was forecast to be 4% during 2022. Pretty high by recent standards. It's now forecast to be 7.4% during this year, which is a 40-year high. Again, inflation makes it much more difficult for the Chancellor. He does get a bit more tax revenue, but you expect investment and growth to be slower. And of course, inflation represents this cost of living crisis that we're all Facing. Now, if we look at the next slide, here's another eye-catching figure. In 2022-23, that's the fiscal year starting next month in April, the Chancellor said that we are going to spend, as a country, £83 billion the government will spend in debt interest. That's a huge amount of money. It's four times up on the year before, partly because we're borrowing a little bit more, but mainly because interest rates are going up and those debt payments are often linked to the rate of inflation. So we are now going to be spending on debt interest more than we spend on education in this country, more than we spend 
on defence. And the Chancellor wielded that figure, in my view, near the top of his speech to say borrowing isn't costless. Government spending means you have to borrow and pay interest, which wouldn't then go to schools, hospitals and other public services that we all want to see. Let's have a look at the next slide. And this is about the national insurance contribution increase. This was already legislated for, though the Chancellor was under a lot of pressure to reverse this policy. He didn't. He refused. He stood his ground. This is a 1.25 percentage point increase in the national insurance contributions for both employers and employees. That's firms and workers. For ordinary workers, that's going to cost lower rate taxpayers £178 a year on average and higher rate taxpayers £715 a year on average. This is the tax rise that a lot of Tory backbenchers and indeed the Labour frontbench didn't want to see. But Sunak went through with it. So what else did he do to offset that? Well, that's shown on the next slide because he also aligned the thresholds. What does that mean? You pay income tax and then you pay national insurance on top. And what he did is he increased the national insurance threshold by £3,000. So you pay no national insurance contribution up to the first £12,570 that you earn in a year. That's the same as the basic rate of income tax threshold as well. So that acts as a tax cut because you can earn more without paying national insurance on it. And that's £6 billion in lower taxes. In total, the Chancellor said, a tax cut that will uh, help 30 million people, which is a huge chunk of the workforce. Also, the Chancellor made another tax cut, but this is one which may or may not come in. He says it will, but he doesn't really know. Rishi Sunak said he's going to cut the basic rate of income tax from 20 to 19 pence, but he's not going to do that until 2023, 2024, which so happens to be an election year. Will it happen? We don't know. He says it's costed on the Office for Budget Responsibility's current forecasts. They say it could happen within the numbers, the parameters that he set. But of course, with so much uncertainty, he simply cannot, in my view, credibly say that that tax cut will happen. There was one other thing that the Chancellor did, which I thought was interesting and will certainly be on the front of a lot of head, uh, newspapers tomorrow. He cut the fuel duty on petrol and diesel by five pence per litre. And that cut last cut starts at 6 p.m. tonight. It lasts for a year until March 2023. It sounds good, but if you got a 55 litre car, that's a standard saloon. That's only going to cost save you three pounds 30 every time you fill up. So a headline grabbing saving, but not a huge saving. And the next slide, something else, solar heat pumps and insulation. When we were in the European Union, these, uh, the spending on these things was, uh, had VAT on it. Rishi Sunak's now removed that VAT, making them so-called zero rated for five years. This is something the Chancellor was at pains to add and he did vote to leave the European Union. We can only do after Brexit. So that was a kind of Brexit dividend. And as soon as he said that, you could hear lots of cheering from certain parts of the Tory backbenches. But guess what? That brings into uh, play the Northern Ireland Protocol. Because Northern Ireland is still effectively in the EU single market, that zero rating on VAT doesn't apply in Northern Ireland, at least for now. So that was the spring budget, the spring statement. 
It didn't have anything to, in terms of extra help for households with those fuel bills, even though we've had the Russia-Ukraine crisis since the Chancellor unveiled his package. It didn't have anything in terms of uprating benefits. They're only going to go up by 3.1%, which is the rate of inflation last September. But it did, did the Chancellor say, deliver the biggest cut in net personal taxation for a quarter of a century if that cut in the basic rate of income tax does indeed happen in 2023. Interesting stuff, Liam. Uh, you referenced there about reductions uh, on tax. Labour, of course, being very critical, as you would expect today, uh, of some of the details in this. They're calling uh, Sunak a high-tax chancellor. They are indeed. That was my take, Michelle, literally a few minutes after Rishi Sunak sat down. Gloria Pierre and I did a five-hour budget uh, spring statement special broadcast uh, on GB News this lunchtime and into the afternoon. And since the dust has settled a little bit, th since I've been off air uh, thinking about the spring statement, thinking about what I heard, I guess what's really come to the fore of my mind isn't only the way politics has been reversed with the Tories raising taxes while saying that they're not and Labour saying that they don't want those tax rises. What's also sprung to my mind, Michelle, as I've looked through the technical documents, is during this cost of living crisis, just how little there is in this budget for really hard pressed families. I said at the end of that video wall presentation there, I slightly fluffed my lines, uh, but I said that benefits are only gonna be uprated from April by 3.1%, because that's what happens. You uprate them by the rate of inflation the previous autumn. So now we've got the situation where benefits are gonna go up only by 3.1%. But officially, the government's saying that inflation will be 7 to 8% this year on average. So that's a real terms cut in benefits at a time when we know that more vulnerable households, lower income households, spend heavily on fuel and food, a bigger chunk of their income. So I think there's going to be a, a, an increase in relative and absolute poverty in the UK. A lot more food banks, a lot more people really struggling with their bills, choosing between heating and eating. And I, I'm afraid to say, I don't say this with any pleasure, I saw very little in this spring statement that suggests that this chancellor gets that. And Liam, I've, I've got to say, I've had a lot of people already writing in about pensioners and the impact on pensioners that are on fixed incomes, of course. What would your uh, thoughts be on that? I think that's true. There was, a lot of this budget seemed to me about sort of political positioning. The Chancellor now is effectively going through with that tax rise in terms of national insurance because he doesn't want to climb down. He doesn't want to admit that the world has changed since last autumn when he announced and we legislated for that tax rise only to lower taxes, he says he will, before the end of this parliament by 2024, when, of course, there will be a general election. It struck me there was too much political game playing at a time when not just pensioners, but many parts of our population are really feeling the squeeze. That number that you came up with at the top of your show, that this is the biggest fall in living standards since the 1950s, 
that was you didn't plunk that out of the air. I know where you got that from. That is in the Office for Budget Responsibility documents. It was pointed out by the Institute for Fiscal Studies. That is an astonishing number. And given that there are so many issues in terms of the cost of living squeeze with families feeling the pinch, wondering how they're going to make ends meet. For me, there was far too much political gamesmanship in this spring statement and not nearly enough substance. Liam Halligan, thanks for your insights there. Well, I mentioned at the start of the show, didn't I, that one of the key kind of announcements, if you will, today in this spring statement was the reduction, the cut to fuel duty by 5p a litre, as I mentioned. Uh, that came into effect at six o'clock. Our reporter, Alice Porter, joins me now from a petrol station in Reading. Good evening to you. Uh, Alice, what's going on with the prices where you are? Did they indeed uh, drop by the 5p? And crucially, by the way, do you know what they were at the start of the morning? Hi there, good evening. Well, I have to say, I wondered whether there'd be a bit of a mad dash to the pumps at six o'clock, uh, but sadly, I have to say, it is incredibly quiet, and I think that's partly because the prices haven't changed at all since I've been here. I don't know what they were this morning, but as you can see behind me, you've got £1.67 a litre, which is actually as high as the record numbers that we saw on Tuesday, and they haven't changed yet. Perhaps they may do over the next couple of hours, but I think the problem is, is what we've heard from the RSC, is that even if it drops by 5p a litre, um, it only takes us back to where prices were a week ago. I mean, as Liam was saying just then, I mean, £3.30 off uh, filling up your car if it's a family car. It's a bit of a drop in the ocean when prices are so high. I mean, it is going to be in place until March, which is a good thing. But of course, it really is with the cost of living so high. I'm not surprised that this petrol station is, as I'm looking around, completely empty. And sadly, I think it's just not not enough for motorists who are hit by such high prices at the moment when it comes to filling up their car. Alice Porter, thank you. Uh, let's get a quick reaction from my panel. Jeevan, I'll start with you. Just a very brief, um, because I do actually want to get into this in lots of different detail after the break. But just for now, your initial thoughts on what you've heard today. The largest fall income for 70 years, somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 pounds for the average family. And today, a couple of sticking plasters worth at best a few hundred. Sticking plasters. Ruth, your thoughts? Well, I think he's had a very unenviable task. I mean, I appreciate that the cost of living crisis is serious for a lot of people, well, for all of us, let's mm. be honest about this. But he also has to think about the fiscal discipline and actually selling all the debt. And don't let's forget that debt now is about the best part of two trillion pounds in this country. So he had to balance a sort of fiscal discipline with some sort of measures that would help the cost of living crisis. But let's be frank, he's been in a very, very difficult position. Indeed, Louise. Saving his firepower just in case. I think the big thing is massive uncertainty. We don't know what Putin is going to do yet. Um, and that could have a massive increase in oil and gas prices. We are already looking at another 40 to 50 percent increase in energy costs only in October. Mm. And that does not assume Putin does something really unpleasant. So saving his firepower because the world could be a very dangerous, scary place. Just a quick reminder as to who my panel is tonight, the economic commentator, Ruth Lee, uh, the financial analyst, Louise Cooper, and Jeevan Sander, who's an economist at King's College London. So I think it's safe to say these guys, 
They know their onions when it comes to the economy and finances. Lots of you guys have been getting in touch tonight. Uh, June, I was saying earlier on about the five pence cut in fuel duty. I've got a little suspicion um, that various uh, petrol stations were putting up their prices today just so that they could be seen to be reducing them again. So I am fascinated. If you've been uh, paying attention to petrol pumps today, what has gone on with the prices that you've seen? How did they change today? Uh, of course, they will have dropped, or should have dropped, should I say, uh, because the 5p fuel duty took effect at 6 o'clock, 25, 25 minutes ago. Let me know, won't you? June says, I'm a taxi driver, Michelle. And all day long, uh, she says, prices have been going up by an average of 8p to 10p a litre, she says. Uh, we're being ripped off. I think, June, you might be right on that, but do keep your thoughts coming in. Declan says, you're talking about spring statements. Well, I've got a spring statement for the Tories. He says, we're all going to vert you out. I found that interesting, Declan, um, because this is what I'm interested in. I'll get into this with my panel in just a second. Um, can Rishi Sunak basically deal with all of this? Can he take all the pain away? I don't think he can. I think that's too unrealistic. Rob has emailed in saying, Michelle, if, it, if Rishi had given everyone £5,000, we would have all wanted £10,000. He simply cannot win, he goes on to say. So let me know your thoughts. But Jeevan, um, I want to spend my show tonight looking at this. Um, one of the situations that we pontificated about a lot was national insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, Rishi took a lot of pressure from a lot of people from all sides, actually, including his own side, to press pause on that hike, 1.25% coming into force in April. He did not do that, but he did, he did raise the thresholds uh, by which, you know, the point of which people will need to start paying them, which has saved a lot of people uh, getting affected by this hike. But overall, in terms of what you saw today, do you think it was a, a bold mini... I'm going to call it a mini budget. I know it's not really, but for the purposes of today, I'll call it that. Was you happy with it? Well, I wasn't happy, and I also would call it a budget as well. If it looks like a budget and you get the new cycle of a budget, it is a budget, no matter what the Chancellor might like to say otherwise. I also think, actually, it didn't meet the scale of the challenge. You know, once in 70-year crisis. Now, we do face another horseman of the apocalypse in the form of war, straight after the last one in plague. But look how he responded to COVID and look how small the response was today. A rise in prices or a falling income of £1,000. If the Chancellor wanted to, he could have actually given everyone a £1,000 cheque and taxed it to make it progressive. That would have cost a third of the furlough scheme. He could have raised benefits as well. We should remember it is the most deprived, the pensioners, severely disabled and children who cannot work to make up the difference between rising prices and lower social security payments, that will suffer the most. After today, more children will be going hungry and more pensioners will be going cold. But Ruth, do you think um, Rishi has perhaps made a rod for his own back? Because, you know, money was handed out seemingly like confetti during COVID. We obviously now know that lots and lots of it were, was taken and received fraudulently, but pack that to one side. I think it has given this impression that actually when times are tough, there's this humongous, never mind magic money tree. It's almost like there's a forest of magic money trees. Yeah. And now I do almost think he's set himself up almost for failure. What's your thoughts? Well, I think that's right. And I think the National Audit Office is saying that somehow the support for the COVID was about 370 billion 
pounds. It was absolutely extraordinary. And it wasn't just the fraud. You also had a, a lot of misspending, no doubt, on PPE and test and traced and goodness knows what else. I mean, they really did spend money like water. But I, as I said in my initial remarks, I think now he has to, has to get to grips with some sort of fiscal discipline. Otherwise, he's going to find it very, very difficult to control going down the line. It's interesting that we're talking about the national insurance contrib contributions and the increase, the one and a quarter percent, as being a very big deal. And it is in some ways. But of course, because he's raised the threshold so much, that has actually taken the sting out of Nick's. But what we haven't so much discussed tonight is the freezing of thresholds on income tax, mm. um, which is going to be a big hit on a lot of people. And moreover, I think, as Liam was implying, because of inflation and, you know, the, the, the thresholds are usually upgraded with using CPI inflation, because inflation is so much higher, then they're going to get a lot more in extra tax than they would have otherwise done by on, that. On that point, but correct me if I'm wrong, Lee, just to, Ruth, sorry, just to give you just to give you some context of what we're talking about here. So the, the tax thresholds were frozen. What this is estimated to look like over a course of three years is that 2.8 million people will be pulled into paying tax and 2 million uh, additional people will be paid, uh, pulled into the higher tax rate. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Yes, Sorry, Ruth. Indeed, and I think if, from memory, I sort of think that he, they initially thought it might raise 8 billion a year or something. It's now going to raise something like 20 billion a year. This is a big one, and yet it's not had the coverage that the NIGS has had, and I think it's actually the big one. The other thing I would like to say is that I know we've been talking about the national insurance contributions today, the cuts in fuel duty that may or may not be the case, but also the other thing that which Sunak has done, he did have an energy package back in February, which had to be costed in this spring statement. And that amounted to about nine billion pounds for this for the next financial year. So he's done a bit, sort of, or he's done his best to sort of help the cost of living crisis. But I think he's also had to think about other things as well as a responsible chancellor that perhaps spent an awful lot of money during COVID. Um, Louise, as well, I mean, a lot of people will be thinking about the costs of energy. You know, you mentioned as well um, that the, the cap is going to raise again in October. People will genuinely be panicking right now about energy. And there was very little uh, from the Chancellor to cover that off today. So if you read what the Office of Budget Responsibility is, is, is saying, they say themselves, you know, that the oil price is all over the place. They had to like redo their numbers about four times because the oil price was moving so quickly. Um, we got to a high of about $140 a barrel for oil, now down to about $100 a barrel. Gas is so volatile, it's just insane. And the trouble is, still, Europe is buying vast amounts of Russian oil and gas, selling something like a billion dollars a day to Putin. I have no idea what Putin will do, okay? But if he does something truly horrific and Europe, Germany and Italy mainly, suddenly decide they cannot buy Russian oil and gas, we are not looking at $150 oil, we're looking at $250 oil. And that will be catastrophic for the cost of living. And we just don't know what's going to happen. As I said, we are already facing an energy price cut going up 40% in October, just on the numbers we have now. And so I think he didn't do anything on more on energy because we just don't know what's going to happen. And he has to, to a certain extent, keep the powder dry just in case 
we have a literally a 1970s style oil price and gas price shock. And so I think that's what he's thinking. And who knows, maybe the risk of Putin doing something insane is 5%. Maybe it's 95%. I have no idea. But it is a risk. Do you think he could have done more or should have done more on the energy stuff, Ruth? Uh, I think this time I take your point completely. We're in an, a, com a completely uncertain world. And uh, the forecasts, I mean, the poor old OBR, they must have been revising their, st <laughs> their forecasts every five minutes. Um, and I think, actually, when I looked, Brent crude's gone up back to $120 a barrel. Oh, I missed that. That happened this afternoon. Well, so, you see, I mean, I totally take your point that we are in a position where we do not know what's going to happen. So I think, to some extent, you said keeping his powder dry and trying to have some sort of discipline at the same time. I actually thought that was the right strategy for today because this isn't, going to the end of the story by any means. I mean, you, we could well see if it really gets to a serious situation, there might be some emergency packages. How many emergency packages did we have during COVID? Mm -hmm. I mean, I lost count of the wretched things. And of course, this I repeat this, well, we repeat, this is not a budget. This was actually just a spring statement when really all, we, all it's meant to be is actually giving the OBR an opportunity to revise their statistics. And why is there such a clear distinction, by the way? Because people might be uh, listening and saying, well, hang on a second, why do they keep making uh, the point that this is not a budget, it's not a budget, it's not a budget? And then we simultaneously say, well, if it looks like a budget, smells like a budget, sounds like a budget, then it's a budget. Someone explained to me, and to the viewers, the technical difficult, uh, not difficulties, although you might be difficulties, actually, the technical differences between what makes uh, something defined as a budget, whereas this thing clearly defined as not a budget. I'm looking at you as the expert. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, I think it is a messaging discipline. If the Chancellor wanted to, he could say, this is the budget, I'm going to have a huge suite of measures. He chose not to do that. I suspect when he was set up, when he was planning the spring statement, he didn't plan to have much in it at all before this energy price went in. But to be honest with you, I don't think the distinction matters. We've had this during Gordon Brown's time as well. If you're standing up in Parliament, you're delivering a speech and you're making tax and spending decisions, this is a budget. Yeah, and I mean, lots of people will come on to some questions as well in the next part, but a lot of people um, are mess messaging in about things like pensions. I know, of course, not every single pensioner just relies on a state pension, but many, many do. And we mentioned there uh, inflation. I mean, let's not forget the Bank of England, by the way, their target, uh, Louise, I'll look at you, their target was 2%. Um, we're mentioning here what we're at 6.2. Rishi has said in his thing today that, it, that we might average out at 7.4. It could hit as high as 9%. We have not seen this level of inflation since literally Margaret Thatcher was in number 10, uh, number 10 Downing Street. I mean, this is breathtaking levels of inflation. It's not just the UK. US inflation is higher. European inflation is just the same. We had an inflation cost of living crisis even before uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine because mm. of the supply chain disruption globally caused by COVID. So we had high inflation. I think the really interesting figure is quite how quickly inflation expectations have climbed. Um, only in October, inflation is expected to be 3 to 4%. Now it's expected to be, what, potentially up to 8% this year. I can see, I've seen many commentators, I'm sure you guys have as well, predicting potentially double-digit inflation yes. this year. And, and like I said, that is before Mr Putin does potentially something truly insane. So this is not, this is a global problem, not a UK problem. And I'm afraid... Increasing interest rates 
does not solve the problem. No. We are going to see increased interest rates because the Bank already. of England has to do something, yeah. but it doesn't suddenly get lorry drivers. It doesn't suddenly open factories in China. It doesn't suddenly, you know, make the world COVID free. It doesn't suddenly pump loads more oil to replace Russian oil and gas. It just doesn't. So every, every, every government in the world is facing this horrendous cost of living crisis, and it is going to be very, very painful and it could be far worse. And not to add to the bad news. Oh, you're quite gloomy, <laughs> aren't we? <laughs> inflation is likely, I think, to be at 10%. Every single time we've had an inflation forecast, it's always been wrong in the same direction. At the end of last year, we're expecting 5%. A month ago, we we're expecting 7%. Today, we're now expecting 8%. Every single forecast has been wrong, if you like, and it's been surprised on the upside. So I personally am quite sceptical that we'll keep it in single digit. I was going to say, if I'm going to be cheerful, it was 30% in the 1970s. <laughs> I remember it well. Uh... And interest rates as well, by the way. When we and sit a... here pontificating about uh, base uh, rates of like 0.75% and talking uh, about them going up, etc., oh, we don't know uh, we're born. 15% interest rates. Yeah. That was when life was fun. <laughs> that was, you know, Black Wednesday. But uh, that, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I digress. I digress. But seriously, back to the Bank of England, I think it's got a true dilemma. And after all, they were saying that they expected inflation to go to 8% in, in, the, in their March statement. So they've revised it up very much from their February forecast. And they were even saying then that they look out for double-digit inflation, especially in October, when, as you were saying, that the, the, the energy cap is due to go up again. It, it really is horrific. Um, and the Bank of England knows only too well that just by putting up interest rates, it doesn't actually stop cost price, cost put inflation. But what it hopes to do is to put a, a sort of a signal to try and contain a wage price spiral developing. But as you were saying, it depends on whether expectations about high inflation really get embedded uh, and, there's, and people push for very much in, big increases in earnings when you've got a very tight labour market. I'd be asking for a pay rise. Mm. Wouldn't it? I mean, it's all very well for the Bank of England, governor, governor of the Bank of England on 800, 900 grand a year to tell us all not to get a pay rise. But public sector workers, public sector workers, there was nothing in today's budget for public sector workers getting a 1% pay rise, potentially facing, as we talk about, 10% inflation. That's a 9% pay cut in one year. And I think the bank understands that. And so by putting up interest rates, you know, it's a sort of a, a, a token gesture. But Let's make the mortgage more expensive. Fantastic. <laughs> but whether, whether it does actually deflate the wage price spiral, we will see. But then around and around we go, because if everyone in the private sector goes hurrying up, I'll pack public sector for a second, but if everyone in the private sector goes dashing off to their boss and asks for a pay rise, up go their um, overhead well, cost so, of production, up go the prices to the end user. OK, so this is all quite depressing, right? Let's know, agree, Jesus, this is all quite um... okay, let, me, let me throw a little bit, and you might think, you guys might think I'm completely insane. Let me just throw a little positivity, right? Yes, please. Let me throw a little positivity. So, so, so we have this position where we have a shortage of workers, OK? And we've got huge inflation. So workers, for the first time, I don't know, 30 years, finally have a bit of, mm -hmm. bit of pricing power. So they all go to their bosses and say, right... I want to be paid more money. One of the big problems we have in this country, as the Chancellor talked about, is a lack of investment by businesses. If workers suddenly become, if, if labour becomes more expensive, businesses have to invest in capital goods 
machinery, IT, whatever, to improve the productivity in those workers because they have to pay them more. So maybe, and I, you're looking at me very skeptically, yeah, maybe I'm, this creates a boost to businesses. They're forced to invest. They cannot rely on cheap labor anymore. They have to make their workers more productive. And this will be a good thing. Am I, am I just been drinking the champagne? Well, you or... may well have been drinking champagne. <laughs> or Prosecco, but, given no, we've got I, inflation. I think that is a, a serious point, because I, I always used to argue that, you know, people talk about productivity, which is a very bizarre statistic. But we talked about productivity in Germany or the, or the states being so much higher than us. It was because, on the whole, they had more capital-intensive methods of production than we did. And because of cheap labour, as you were saying, then we tended to go for labour-intensive methods of production. So perhaps... We will see. Could that be a positive? It would have been good news if prices weren't rising so fast. If, un if unemployment was really low and wages were rising, we would have seen, I think, the pattern you're describing. And in the long term, the good news is we still might. But unfortunately, we've had these huge price rises that are starting to kind of hit us. But the, the low unemployment, the powerful labour is really good news. Like, it's an unalloyed good news story. I, see, I think it's a good news story. You know, we've been complaining that workers have not had a pay-wise, what, for 15 years? Mm-hmm. You know, finally, this is the chance, unless you work in the public sector, to go and say, come on, pay me more. Well, there you go. What can I say? Um, <laughs> Labour, by the way, we're not impressed with what Rishi Sunak had to say. The Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeve, uh, compare, uh, compared her opposite number to Alice in Wonderland. Have a look at this. I can't help but feel that in both the Chancellor's recent Mays lecture and in his statement today, we are presented with increasingly incredible claims. Perhaps the Chancellor has been taking inspiration from the characters in Alice in Wonderland, or should I say, Alice in Sunakland? Because nothing here is quite as it seems either. It's the sort of place where a Chancellor celebrates giving people £200 to help them with their spiralling energy bills before explaining that he needs it all back. Exactly. In Sunakland, the Chancellor proclaims, I believe in lower taxes, while at the same time as hiking Alice's national insurance contributions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Alice right. asks the Chancellor, when did lower taxes mean higher taxes? As I mentioned at the start of the programme, we will be focusing on all things financial today because, of course, it was the spring statement. Just a quick reminder as to who our panel is tonight. You've got Ruth Lee, who's the economic commentator, Louise Cooper, the financial analyst, and Jeevan Sander, who's the economist at King's College London. Um, and I have to say, lots and lots of you have been getting in touch um, during that first half of the programme. Uh, one of the first questions that we've been asked, and I say one of the first questions, it has been a repeat thread throughout many of the emails that have been coming in. Put simply, why, they're asking, my viewers are asking, are pensioners on fixed incomes being overlooked? Anyone who wants to pick this up first? I'm surprised, actually. You know, this is one of the Chancellor's core constituencies. Mm. You would think Kinney's always traditionally looked after pensioners. They had the triple lock. I know there are two million pensioners in poverty, certainly too many, but they did fare better than children. I am incredibly surprised. And like your viewers are saying, actually, there is nothing pensioners can do, especially for those who are very old. Uh, they do face a very difficult year ahead. I'm surprised the Chancellor didn't act, and actually he should have. 
as I say, to be fair to the Chancellor, and I'm trying to be fair to him, I know it's very difficult because he's up against such huge difficulties, he did bring in the energy package in February, which was about £9 billion. And I think that was part of £150 rebate, wasn't it? And there was also a £200 reduction in energy costs that you then have to pay back. Yeah, but I, I mean, realize, come on, Ruth. I mean, speaking as a pensioner, if I may say so, that I realise that that is not going to compensate for the increased costs that pensioners are going to have, whether they're on fixed incomes or indeed whether they've had their pensions, their state pensions, upgraded by 3%. Yeah. When they're facing inflation of 7%, 8%, 9%. I know, and I, I do. I'm not exaggerating when I say it. the frequency of which that question has come in tonight. I think there's a lot of people that do rely purely uh, and solely on uh, the state pension that really are feeling worried. And Peter, by the way, has got in touch saying, I earn, Michelle, I earn less than £12,000 a year. So whilst I won't pay national insurance contributions, I have to make voluntary payments because if I don't, I won't get the qualifying years towards my state pension. I think that's an interesting uh, perspective you raised there, Peter, as well. Another question that's come in, again, uh, in different guises, but one of the same. Many people are asking, you know, times are bleak. I think we all recognise that. So why then don't we look at the whole kind of net zero thing? Why aren't we cutting green taxes instead to solve financial problems? Who wants to pick up on this one first on the panel? Well, I'll push... Jeevan's straight in there. He's not messing around. Go I'll on, Jeevan. I'll not to get to net zero is costing us more. Somewhere between 50 and £150 of your bill is there because we didn't insulate homes in the 2010s. Why are we so exposed to the global gas and oil prices? Because actually we do not have a renewable grid or at least one that's local to this country. So if we want to have long-term lower bills... It's not net zero that's kind of stopping us. It's net zero that would have helped us. And we have been very successful with uh, wind farms. Um, if the weather's right, up to 25, 30% of our electricity does come from wind farms. It's something that the UK has excelled at. And we've been able to do that because of very generous government subsidies. Mm. So the government can intervene successfully to move us into the green, you know, the, the, the new green uh, economy. As you said, if the weather is right. If the weather's right, And yeah. this is a $100 problem with renewables. They're intermittent, so you always have to have backup provision, whether it's from nuclear power or we need more nuclear mm. power. I mean, Boris Johnson is now beginning to talk about that, if I may say so, rather late in the day, but I do believe in building up nuclear power or indeed... May I say so? Gas-powered power stations are, are really the necessary to 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 provide That's the backup um, electricity supply. I, I think actually net zero is is a madness. I think it's deranged. If you really want my opinion on course. this, of course. And I'm not going to beat around the bush about this. Uh, the idea that here are we struggling with terrific expense. I mean, is it going to cost two trillion, three trillion? What's it going to cost this country to go for net zero? at a time when we, we're responsible or we're accountable for 1% of global emissions, mm. and China and India uh, are building coal-fired sta power stations as if there's no tomorrow. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a curious sort of futile virtue signalling, and I really am saying what I think now, and uh, I, I suspect that this net zero, it will have to be addressed again because it is so expensive and so destructive, and we really do need to build up our own gas and oil reserves better than we have done. Ruth, if I could stand up and high-five you, I would. 
because I agree with everything that you've just said. However, I've got so many cables that I don't know what would happen. So I'll stay seated, <laughs> but I do agree pretty much with every single word you've said then. And I know that lots of my viewers will as well. Um, another question, I mean, we touched on this very briefly, but just brief thoughts on this one. What, can, what should be done to address the rise in, infl in inflation, says Jonathan? It's just, I mean, it's, what, what can we do, right? The oil and the gas price is what it is. The supply chain chaos due to COVID is what it is. I, I just don't think there is a solution at all. You know, the inflation is what it is. If the government decides to offset some of that cost um, through more benefit spending, it could do to. I really do think, though, with Ruth, that I don't think this is the end of it. I think he doesn't want mini budgets, but I think we will see, if it gets worse from here, other emergency measures. You know, uh, we've touched do, do you agree? I mean, what I would say, yeah, I think you've got to put more money in people's pockets. In the longer term, there are cost reduction measures. But there's also one thing in the short term we haven't really discussed yet, which is Brexit. Our shipping costs are 25% more expensive than the continents. Now, we can change that if we have a deal that works. We accepted that we've left the European Union, but let's get a better deal with fewer queues outside Dover. Because every single truck that's having to wait is costing us more in our weekly shop. Ruth, anything on the Brexit Well, side I just shake my head in despair because I, I thought Brexit has happened and let's just move on. And, and the, there may be extra costs attached to Brexit, but let's be honest, there are benefits as well, not least of all these wonderful trade agreements that Aunt Marie Trevelyan is, uh, is, is arranging. So, um, you know, it's cost and benefit about uh, Brexit. And trade with the EU is back to pre-Brexit uh, levels. So our trade overall, they think it's 15% lower. These trade deals no, no, we've no, got with no. Australia, well, 0.05% no, of GDP. Our trade with the EU mm. is pretty well back to the levels it was before, back in 2019, 2020. And their trade has increased further. So when you look at what, how we should have done and in that period, in our the trade meantime, is 15% lower. Uh, our, the actual balance of exports and imports has not changed very much. So what? So the impact on GDP is what? The cost, the cost we have at the borders, not a lot. the cost we will have in the future, that is the cost we have for Brexit. If it's well, costing you more money to get goods in here, it's costing us more. The benefits of Brexit. And what were the benefits, Ruth? I've just said so. These the, wonderful trade deals that Anne-Marie Trillin... These are wonderful trade deals are giving us nothing. With the fact that we well, can get... Well, they've not been ne negotiated yet. We have the ones with Australia and with New Zealand. New Zealand, Point Singapore, and she's going to Canada GDP. for Canada 2.0, and then she's going off to Israel, and then she might even chat up Joe Biden, and then she's looking at the Trans-Pacific, whatever it is. So come on, be positive. But also... Brexit's a great idea. Yeah, and Jeevan, there'll be people watching this, and I know, I know my audience by now a little bit, and there'll be people watching this that say that actually Brexit wasn't just about trade, mm. for example. It was about sovereignty. We've all just been talking now about such an uncertain world that we live in. You know, Lord only knows what is around the corner next for us. But, you know, the freedom, actually, to decide your own policy, whatever that might look like, I would suggest, is something that you can't really put a price on. And when we talk about Brexit, we had COVID. You know, we were straight out the gate with a vaccine. So freedom to decide your own policy. She even may laugh at that. I actually think it's something you can't put a price on. Uh, someone else asked a question, one of my viewers, saying, does Rachel Reeves have a future in comedy? That's Dorian. Um, well, you know, you could look at, look at what happens to comedians these days. They end up in high states, 
uh, right across the world, don't they? So who knows? Anyway, that's pretty much all we've got time for. I hope that's answered some of your questions. We can go around and around on the whole cost of living thing. We will continue to talk about it, I am sure. Sorry that not much of that was positive. What can we do? Uh, panel, thank you very much. And thank you for your company at home. Have a good evening and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>